0: Good morning. Go ahead and turn with me to Genesis chapter forty-six. Genesis forty-six, recovering verses twenty-eight to chapter forty-seven, verse twelve. Maybe I could preach from this chair today. What do y'all think? No, Uh, probably not. All right. Start off with a little uh, Q and A here. Uh, I have a question. Just a random question. I, I just Curious to see who in this room thinks that they have moved the most in their life. If you could count up the most moves. Who do we think here in this room can say that they've moved the most? All right, what do you think? How many uh, do you have? have say, a, number? a number? Yes. Oh, yeah, you need a okay, I'll give you a second. <laughs> do, 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 do. Think about it. Think about it. Eight major moves. All right, eight major moves. Anybody think that they have can beat eight major moves? You got eight as well. All right, Matt has eight as well. Eight. You've got eight as well. All right, this is going number. It's going right today. <laughs> All right. Well, okay. We'll we'll go with eight then. And for your prize, since uh, you know since you've moved the most in this classroom, it means that. You have, you're perfectly fit for a church plant move. You've already moved eight times. You are, you know how to do it. You got it down. We'll go ahead and bring y'all on board. No, no, no. The title of our lesson today is Moving to Egypt. Moving to Egypt, part two. And we are going to continue studying Jacob's move down to Egypt. So whether it's one time, or for some of us here in this room, eight times, or maybe somebody didn't want to give their number, and they've gone more than eight times because you knew that it would force you to go to the church plant. No. No matter how many times you knew, uh, you've you moved in your lifetime, you know that moving, moving can be stressful, right? Moving is tough. Now, there's some excitement to it, but it's not always fun. For Sarah and I, as we are thinking about church planning. there's many things we're excited about and happy about. One thing we're not quite excited about is moving. Uh, There's physical stress with that. There's physical labor, heavy boxes you have to pick up, heavy bed sets and furniture and all that. And we were actually just helping a friend move on uh, yesterday, yesterday morning, and it's just not very fun. You know, not very fun having to move things into a moving U-Haul, taking it down there, pulling your back out, and Breaking things, you know, and all that, it's just not very fun. There's also the financial stress, financial stress of moving, of trying to get a real estate agent if that's the way you go, trying to work through interest rates and housing costs and all those kind of things. There's the financial stress of moving. There's also the emotional tear. You know, you're leaving friends behind, possibly. Uh, You're possibly leaving family behind. In many ways, moving can be flat-out difficult. Now, multiply that a hundredfold for Jacob. There was the physical labor, moving a clan of 70 people, uh, moving herds of animals, all their possessions, and, you know, they didn't have nice U-Haul trailers back then, so you can imagine how difficult it was physically for them to move. There was the financial stress, right? There is a worldwide famine going on. Where is he going to find food? They're not going to another house that he has just purchased. He's got to find a place to stay. There's the financial stress of that. But above all, for Jacob was the spiritual distress. The spiritual distress. Jacob was leaving Canaan, he was leaving the land that God had promised to him, his father, his grandfather, his descendants. And additionally, think of where Jacob was going. He was going to Egypt. Abraham had previously gone down to Egypt during the time of a famine, almost to his family's doom, back in Genesis chapter 12. Isaac was warned, don't go down to Egypt, in Genesis 26. And throughout the Old Testament, God's prophets make synonymous going down to Egypt with unbelief go down to Egypt and Old Testament thought was to turn away from God and to turn to the world. And so then we see that this was not just a normal act of relocation. It required immense faith and divine confirmation. And so it's for this very reason, last time that we walked through the text, um, God revealed himself to Jacob out Beersheba in order to grant him peace and assurance. Look at Chapter 46, verses 3 through 4. This was the key text that Rod went through last time. He said, I am God. Right? God spoke to Israel in a vision. He said, I am God, the God of your father. Do not be afraid to go down to Egypt, for I will make you a great nation there. I will go down with you to Egypt, and I will also surely bring you up again. And Joseph, your son, will close your eyes. So what we've seen last time is that God has promised to show his salvation and to bless Jacob's household in Egypt. God has promised that. He's declared that in his word. And now what we see in our passage today is that we witness, we witness God manifest that salvation which he swore to the patriarch. Right, We go from God saying, I will be with you, Jacob, to now this passage, God showing without a shadow of a doubt that he is with Jacob. So as we come to our sermon theme today, as we think and try to encapsulate what is this message about, it's this, to the wise leadership of Joseph and his own goodness, God demonstrates the faithfulness of his promise by providing his people a new Yet temporary home. Here we see in this passage God demonstrate his goodness, demonstrate his faithfulness, that what he has promised, he will in fact do. And he will do that through the means of Joseph and through the king of Egypt. This narrative of God's goodness to provide Jacob a new home will see unfolds in three phases three phases. The first is the emotional reunion. The emotional reunion. Look with me at verse 28. Now he sent Judah before him to Joseph to point out the way before him to Goshen, and they came into the land of Goshen. From the very get-go here in verse 28, Moses is emphasizing a point. He's trying to make a statement here. He does that by, in the Hebrew text, moving the word Judah to the front of the sentence. Joseph, uh, Moses is, if you would like, making Judah's name bold here. He's italicizing Judah's name. He's trying to draw our attention to the fact that it was Judah that Jacob sent. He sent Judah to be a scout, a guide, to lead them into the land of Goshen, but he also chose Judah to go before him to Joseph. Why? Why would Moses choose to highlight highlight this in this little nugget of detail for us? Well, there's two reasons. Because first, it shows Jacob's transformation. Excuse me, Judah's transformation. All right, previously, we remember in Genesis chapter 37 that Jacob sent Joseph, sent him out, To the brothers. And there we saw that Judah had served as the ringleader in ripping the family apart. Well, now, in a beautiful act of transformation, we see now it is Judah being sent out to Joseph, not to rip the family apart, but to reconcile and bring the entire family back together again. This is a demonstration of God's grace. This is encouraging for us, that God takes broken vessels like Judah, and he renews them, and then he uses them for his good purposes. I just love what Jacob's actions, what they convey here, right? By now, at this point, Joseph, uh, when he sent Judah and the brothers back to Jacob, they had to tell dad their dirty little secret that, you know what, dad, you know, Joseph's not actually dead. So at this point, Jacob knows that they had done. He knows what Judah would have done those many years ago, but notice what Jacob doesn't do. He doesn't give up on his son. He doesn't ostracize him. He doesn't kick him to the curb, but we see here that he shows grace. He forgives Judah. He utilizes Judah within the family role. This is a picture of God's grace at work in this family, but we also see that Moses highlights Judah's role here because it's going to serve as a foreshadow of what's to come in the rest of the chapters to follow. That Judah will serve what? He will serve as the inheritor of the royal seed. He will be be the one to lead the family, as we'll see in um, Genesis chapter forty nine, verse ten. That from the scepter of Judah, excuse me, from the the line of Judah, the scepter will not depart. So. Here we see Moses emphasizing that it is, in fact, Judah sent before. And so he goes before, he leads the way, he points it out, and they come safely into the land of Goshen. Verse 29, then he goes down, apparently, and he informs Joseph what has happened. Verse 29, Joseph prepared his chariot, and he went up to Goshen to meet his father Israel. As soon as he appeared before him, he fell on his neck, and he wept on his neck A long time. And the sense we get here is one of haste, Uh, of haste, of of quickness here. Normally, a man with uh, Joseph's stature, he is the uh, second in command over the country. He would have slaves, he would have servants do his work for him to literally not prepare, but the Hebrew word says harness his own horse. Joseph says, "I, I don't have time for that, guys. Joseph takes it upon himself he hears the news he's got a race to get to his father he throws on the harness he jumps on his horse he flies off into the distance the dust being kicked up and here he goes right forget the chauffeur let's get in the car let's go and the text says as soon as he peered before him he fell on his neck right like this blockbuster motion picture we can see Joseph he sees his father he 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 gets off the horse and there he is running to his dad running to his dad. He leaps off, he runs to him, he, he takes up his father in his arms, he embraces him, and, and he buries his face deep within his father's neck, and he weeps. He weeps. Right, notice there's no words yet at this point. They just need time to let it all out. The, the hot tears of emotion flow out like a released damn They cry. Notice the intensity of this weeping. At the end of the verse, it says, He wept on his neck a long time. Right back in Genesis chapter 45, it says that He wept on the neck of His brothers, but here it's a long time. He wept and He wept and He wept. And we understand why. If you're a parent in this room, you understand why. Father and son, separated for 22 years, right, afflicted by inexpressible emotional pain and torment, father thinking his son was dead, son thinking he would never see his family again. But here they are, right, finally together at last. It's beautiful. And so they wept. And then after the the blubbering and the boohooing had subsided, the words can now finally form in Jacob's mouth. He is able to speak. And we see what he says in verse 30. Then Israel said to Joseph, now let me die, since I have seen your face, that you are still alive. We remember back in Genesis 37, so we've said and talked about in the past that he thought he was going to go down to his grave mourning and sorrow, that he would never see his son again. But now... Now he says, I can die in peace. I can be at rest. My eyes have beheld the, th- the sun that I never thought I would see again. Many parents have the same thing today as we know of parents that have a missing child. And the, the, the intense emotional pain. And then upon seeing their child's face, how they are now at rest. And also similarly, um, centuries later in Jerusalem, there's a man named Simeon, if you remember that story, in Luke chapter 2, who echoes the same language that we find here in Genesis. While Jacob could die with a sweet assurance, having looked upon his temporal savior, Joseph, Simeon could die in confidence knowing that he had looked upon the eternal savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. He says in Luke chapter 2, verses 29 through 30, now Lord... You are releasing your bondservant to depart in peace according to your word, for my eyes have seen your salvation. Like Simeon, Jacob was looking upon the Lord's salvation. Notice with me how this verse correlates, verse 30 correlates with verses 3 through 4. Right, God had promised to be with Jacob, he had promised to bless Jacob to make him a great nation down in Egypt. And he says at the end of verse 4, and Joseph will close your eyes. It's almost as if this was a sign, if you would. Here's how you can believe me, Jacob. Joseph will close your eyes. You will see your son. And so now here, Jacob is looking upon that son, seeing him, and now He can be at peace. He knows that God is faithful. God is manifesting the fidelity of his word. What he told Jacob that he will do, indeed, God is doing it. He will bless Jacob. He will make him a great nation because Jacob now sees with his own eyes the sun that he never thought that he would see again. God is showcasing his salvation, his goodness, his faithfulness through this emotional reunion. Well, that brings us secondly to the second phase of this move down to Egypt, and that's the monumental meeting. The monumental meeting. All right, the reunion is over, but now the, the hard work of trying to find a, a new location to, set, to settle in, that hard work begins. In order to find a new home, they must meet with Pharaoh. And it's in this monumental meeting that we see God again work out his plan to prosper his people in Egypt. This monumental meeting unfolds in two segments. First are the wise instructions. The wise instructions in verses 31 through 34. Right, just like you don't walk into the president's office without having been given some kind of preparatory guidelines on etiquette and diplomacy and respect. So to Jacob's family... They could not just appear before Pharaoh without having received a little bit of instruction. They needed a little bit of coaching here. And so Joseph wisely coaches his family up to prepare for this meeting. He gives them two wise instructions. The first is to do this, let Joseph mediate before them. Let Joseph mediate before them. Verse 31, Joseph said to his brothers and to his father's household, I will go up and tell Pharaoh, and I will say to him, my brothers and my father's household were, who are in the land of Canaan have come to me. And the men are shepherds, for they have been keepers of livestock, and they have brought their flocks and their herds and all that they have. Right, Joseph explains to his brothers here, he says, let me take the initiative here, guys. Right? Let me take the initiative. I, I will go up. I will be the one to speak with him first. And, of course, this makes sense for us because Pharaoh and Joseph have a close relationship. Joseph serves as Pharaoh's right-hand man. And so he says, hey, guys, let me take the initiative here. I will mediate before you and Pharaoh. And this is what I'm going to say to Pharaoh. I'm going to tell him that, hey, my brothers, my father, my family has come. if we remember in chapter 45, that's exactly what Pharaoh had requested. And so what Joseph is saying here is saying to Pharaoh, hey, Pharaoh, they have obeyed. They've come. They're here now. We're doing as you have said, Pharaoh. We are submissive to you. And not only that, verse 32, he also is going to inform Pharaoh what their occupation is. These men are shepherds, for they have been keepers of livestock. They have brought their flocks, their herds, all that they have. In other words, Pharaoh, don't worry. These guys are not a threat to you. They're not kings. They're not warriors. They're shepherds. You don't have to worry about them they're not a threat to your kingdom you don't have to worry about this nomadic people coming into your kingdom and taking up your land they're also not a burden to you pharaoh right they've brought their own supplies here they've brought their their own herds their own animals they're hard workers they provide for themselves they're they're not here to look for a governmental handout they're not here to just say all right pharaoh we're here just give us what we want in a sense Oh, Joseph says, "Hey, let me go in front. Let me prime the pump, if you would. And then, guys, you can give your testimony." And so, this is his first wise instruction. Let me mediate before you. But secondly, hey, guys, you need to let Pharaoh know your occupation. I'm going to tell him, but now you need to give your testimony here. You need to bear witness, and we're going to see why. Verse 33, when Pharaoh calls you and he says, "What is your occupation?" You shall say, Your servants have been keepers of livestock from our youth even until now, both we and our fathers, that you may live in the land of Goshen, for every shepherd is loathsome to the Egyptians. So we see here the emphasis that Joseph wants them to place on their occupation, on what they do for a living. He says, You tell Pharaoh this, that we've been keepers of livestock from our youth until now, right? As long as we have lived. This is what we've known ever since we were a, a young little lad that could first hold a, a little shepherd's staff. We've been out in the fields working the sheep, working the herds. We know nothing else here, Pharaoh, but not just us, but our fathers, both we and our fathers. This is a multi-generational trade. In other words, Pharaoh, this is who we are. This is what we do. We cannot and we will not leave our family business. But why does Joseph want to stress the importance of this? Why does he want his brothers to make known their occupation? He gives the answer in verse 34, that, there's our purpose, there's our reason, there's Joseph's reasoning behind it all, it's that you may live in the land of Goshen, for every shepherd is loathsome to the Egyptians. Ironically, by doubling down on what their occupation is as shepherds, Jacob's family would successfully be ensuring that everyone in Egypt would hate them. It's kind of an odd strategy, don't you think? Let's tell something to Pharaoh and to the Egyptians that's going to make us an abomination in their eyes. Hmm. Well, while we don't know why the Egyptians loathe shepherds, we don't know. What was going on here exactly behind that? What we do know is that despite the way we might look at it, Joseph's strategy was incredibly wise. Well, how was it wise, you ask? Well, by tactfully guiding Pharaoh's decision. Joseph was ensuring that his family would secure the land of Goshen. The Nile River, as you know, flows from south to north, and looks like this giant tree uh, running through the very heart of the Egyptian kingdom. You can kind of see the trunk and the little branches at the top right there. And as it gets closer to the Mediterranean, it branches out, creating this extremely fertile region known as the Nile Delta. Kind of a cool picture there from NASA with the desert around and just the green delta that is there situated at top. And Goshen was located on the kind of the eastern, northeastern part of this Nile Delta. Essentially, Goshen was the the green of the green. It was the luscious of the luscious. It was the cream of the crop. It was the best zip code in town if you wanted to be one who raised animals. It provided plenty of space for Jacob's family to grow and to become prosperous. But most importantly, most importantly, why was it that Joseph and Jacob and their family wanted to live in Goshen? It was this. Because living there meant that they would be detached from mainstream Egyptian society. They would be detached from Egyptian culture. They would not be interspersed with a pagan nation. They would not intermingle with an idolatrous nation. They could reserve their identity here. They, they could preserve their culture, their heritage, and most importantly, their worship to God. So this is the the reason that they're driving towards here. And so, with that reality, we can see how momentous, how, how monumental this meeting with a pharaoh with Pharaoh would have been. All right. Yes, Pharaoh had shown great kindness back in chapter 45. but We also know that Pharaoh was a pagan king. He doesn't love God. He doesn't worship God. That was months ago, and the tempers of pagan kings can change as fast as the winter in North Texas. And so the situation needed to be proceeded with care and with caution. And so here we have Joseph laying down these wise instructions. That brings us into the second segment of this monumental meeting, and that's the rendered blessings. The rendered blessings. So Joseph has prepared them. He's coached them up. He's given them the wise instructions. Now we're going to see this meeting actually unfold. What happens here are two blessings are given out. Two blessings are rendered out. First is Pharaoh's blessing in verses 1 through 6. Verse 1 Then Joseph went in and told Pharaoh and said, My father and my brothers and their flocks and their herds and all that they have have come out of the land of Canaan. And behold, they are in the land of Goshen. According to plan, Joseph comes in before Pharaoh, tells him exactly what he was going to say, he serves as their mediator between the Egyptian king and his family. And he announces that his family has arrived. And he just happens to slip in. Oh, and Pharaoh, they, they're in the land of Goshen, Pharaoh. He's setting them up here. He's placing his pieces on the board. And so then, to prove his point that, yes, I indeed, what I am telling you is true, he brings in five of his brothers and presents them to Pharaoh. In verse 2, he took five men from among his brothers, and he presented them to Pharaoh. The question is, well, who are these brothers, some speculate they were the chief of the brothers so as to, to make a good showing and impression before the magistrate. Now, others say, no, 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 these are the, the least of the brothers so as not to intimidate Pharaoh. The best, the least, we don't know. text doesn't say. Now, why was there five of them? Again, we don't know. Maybe to emphasize the point that all of the family participates in the same family business. Again, the text doesn't say. But what we do know is that Joseph had coached these guys up for such a time as this. Verse 3, then Pharaoh said to his brothers, what is your occupation? Ding, 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 ding. Joseph was ready. These guys were ready. He's probably sitting there saying, oh, yes. You know what to say, guys. Don't mess it up. This is what we've been banking on, right? Verse 3, they said to Pharaoh, your servants are shepherds. Both we and our fathers. All right, that's good. Yeah, good. We're on track here. We're humble servants. We're here to serve you, Pharaoh. We are reverent. We have not come to take over anything like that. Yes, we are shepherds, both we and our fathers. They've showed their occupation. Everything is good. Verse 4, they said to Pharaoh, We have come to sojourn in the land, for there is no pasture for your servants' flock, for the famine is severe in the land of Canaan. Joseph, well, that's not exactly what I told him to say, but that's good stuff. Yeah, we are sojourners. That means we are temporary foreigners in the land. We are are temporary residents. We don't plan to make this our permanent home, but because of the famine, we need a place to stay. We need a place for our our animals, our herds, a place to eat. We need temporary relief here, uh, Pharaoh. And then in verse 5, they go on. Maybe getting a little too chatty here. Now, therefore... Please, let your servants live in the land of Goshen. Joseph's face here is like, what are you doing? I didn't know. That's not what I told you to say, guys. You're going off script here. Well, had the brothers ruined the plan, would Pharaoh now be put off and and take offense that these five lowly refugees, these five loathsome shepherds would now come onto his territory and point blank ask him to live in the best of the land of Egypt? Well, we might think so if we didn't know our God, but I love this. Just watch how God's goodness is put on display as he works in Pharaoh's heart. Verse 5, then Pharaoh said to Joseph, so here Pharaoh turns to Joseph. Joseph is the mediator. He says, your father and your brothers have come to you. The land of Egypt is at your disposal. Settle your father and your brothers in the best of the land. Let them live in the land of Goshen. And if you know any capable men among them, then put them in charge of my livestock. What a staggering blessing that Pharaoh bestows upon this people. Right, He offers them the whole of the land to be at their disposal. The land of Egypt is yours, guys. And not just the sojourn, but notice what Pharaoh says he offers them not just a sojourn in Goshen, but he goes beyond that, and he offers them a place to settle down. Hey, guys, you pick out your new home. Settle down here. L- live here in the land. You can have a new home where you can thrive. You can, you can live. And not only that, he offers them a chance to serve in the royal house. Hey, guys, you got any, any of those guys can take care of my sheep? I need some guys to take care of my sheep. He offers them a wonderful opportunity within the royal house as keepers of his livestock. In ancient Egyptian inscriptions, they reveal that this is a highly regarded position. Pharaoh had owned huge herds of cattle, and so this was a very prominent position. So this is the staggering goodness of God. He is faithful to his promises. He is faithful to his word. He said, I will be with you in Egypt. And guess what? He is. He is. He said, I will be with you in making you a great nation in Egypt. And guess what? He has begun. He has begun. Pharaoh has given them the best of the land, the best of the position. And now they can become a great and mighty nation. Doesn't I give you a sense of joy today? God's goodness, right? It's true. God has not promised you to live in the best of the land of the United States of America. You kind of are because you live in Texas. (laughs) He hasn't promised to make you a great and mighty nation, though you are because you are a follower of Christ. You are part of a holy nation, a kingdom of priests. God has promised to provide for your every need, spiritually and physically. Matthew chapter 6, he clothes the birds of the air. He he feeds the birds of the air. He clothes the lilies of the valley. He is good. He is faithful. He knows that we need these things, and he will provide for you, believer. You don't need to be anxious. You don't need to be worried. Trust in him. He He is good. It may mean that we have to do some wise planning. It may mean that we have to do some strategizing. But all in all, we can take heart. Psalm 35, 27 says, Great is the Lord who delights. The Lord delights in the welfare of his servants. We see that. God's goodness being displayed here and providing for their physical needs. Brings us to a second blessing. Then that's Jacob's blessing Verses 7 through 10, he's presented his brothers. Joseph now has one more person to present to Pharaoh, and that's his father, Jacob. And we see in these verses that the focus of this presentation is upon Jacob blessing Pharaoh. And we see that. It's, it serves as bookends, verse 7 and verse 10. As he is introduced and as he departs, the patriarch blesses the Egyptian king. Verse 7 then Joseph brought his father Jacob and presented him to Pharaoh, and Jacob blessed Pharaoh. As we read this verse, we find ourselves asking, what does it mean that Jacob blessed Pharaoh? Scholars, they wrestle with this, and some take this blessing to just be a, a an introductory greeting, as if um, Jacob here was just attempting to be formally polite, as if he was just saying his greeting and saying his salutation, here I am, I'm gone. He was just trying to be polite and nothing more. While Jacob most likely would have included this blessing along with his greeting and farewell, I would, I would argue that there are much bigger theological implications here than a typical hello The idea being presented here is that Jacob is blessing or Jacob is praying for God to bestow his favor upon Pharaoh and to show his goodness to Pharaoh. Turn with me to Genesis chapter 12, Genesis chapter 12 and verse 3. We remember this covenant that God gave to Abram many years before that, he says in Genesis chapter 3, verse 12, this, and I will bless those who bless you. And the one who curses you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. Right? We see here that God has promised to bless anyone who blesses you, Abram, anyone who blesses your seed, your family, your descendants. And so as we turn back to Genesis chapter 47, that's exactly what we see happening here, right? Pharaoh has just blessed Jacob. He has just blessed Abram and his seed. And so what do we see here then? The one who has blessed Abram's seed was now receiving the blessing of God, right? Pharaoh, you have shown kindness to God's people. Now I pray that God will show his kindness to you. Also, we see that Jacob is fulfilling his role as a mediator of blessing to the nations, right? In you, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. And so we see here Jacob fulfilling that role as being a blessing to Pharaoh and to the nations. There's also something else very important going on here. Now turn with me to Hebrews chapter 7, verse 7. Hebrews chapter 7, verse 7. Here in the context of this passage, is speaking of Melchizedek and Abraham, but I think it has also implications and application to this passage as well. In Hebrews chapter 7, verse 7, as you remember, when Abraham and Melchizedek met, we saw that Melchizedek is the one who blessed Abraham. And so in... Hebrews 7, 7, it says, But without any dispute, the lesser, that's Abraham, is blessed by the greater. That's Melchizedek. And so I'd argue the same thing is happening here. The lesser Pharaoh is being blessed by the greater Jacob. Now just pause for a second and let that sink in. Think about that. How does that affect us today? Who was Pharaoh Oh, he just happened to be the most powerful and one of the most wealthy men in the world. If anybody was greater, surely it was Pharaoh, right? Surely it was Pharaoh, the greater, blessing the lesser, Jacob. I mean, who was Jacob? He was a foreigner in another man's land. He was a refugee, a sojourner, a loathsome shepherd, an outcast of the aristocratic society. And yet he, Jacob, is the greater blessing Pharaoh. Why? Because Jacob had everything. Jacob had the promises. Jacob had the inheritance. Jacob had the covenant. Most importantly, he had a relationship with the God of the universe. He was greater because he knew God. And therefore, we can, we can find encouragement from that, right? Right? Don't be tempted to think that greatness is found in one's job title or, or the square footage of one's house. Don't, don't fall into the trap in thinking that, that greatness resides in how many technical gadgets you have in your car or how many dollars are in your bank accounts or how many verses you have memorized or ministries that you serve in or your contributions to the church. Greatness is found in this, that you know Jesus Christ, that you know Christ. And if you found the car, uh, costliest pearl, then you, like Jacob, can serve as a blessing to the world. Pharaoh gets this picture. He understands that this man is blessing him. Because he asked, back in chapter 47, verse 8, he, he asked them a question. He says, how many years have you lived? In the ancient Near Eastern cultures like Egypt, long age was equated with divine favor, right? The longer one lived, it was assumed the more favor he had obtained from the gods. So in a sense, what Pharaoh is doing here is asking, okay, you are blessing me, how old are you? How, How much divine favor do you have to give? How much can you, in a sense, offer me? How much have you accrued that you can now give me? According to Egyptian literature, an idealized old age for Egyptians was 110 so I wonder how shocked Pharaoh would be when in verse 9 Jacob says to Pharaoh, "The years of my sojourning are 130." But notice what he says, "Few and unpleasant have been the years of my life, nor have they attained the years that my fathers lived during the days of their sojourning." All right, 130. This guy is pretty old in our <laughs> estimation. He must have known a prosperous life. As I'm sure what Pharaoh was thinking, Hardly, Jacob answers, few, in terms of his father and his grandfather, Isaac and Abraham. Few and unpleasant. Literally, the Hebrew word is rob, means evil. Evil in a sense, they were hard, they were unpleasant, they were burdensome, they were troublesome. They were difficult for the years of my life. Jacob's right on point here, right? From the very beginning in which he's struggling within his mother's womb. To his trials with Esau, to his um, uh, trickery, excuse me, with Esau, his trials with Laban, his his travesty with his daughter Dinah, with the the tragic death of his wife Rachel, to the, the temporary loss of his son Joseph. This guy's life was one full of difficulty. But to think that these unpleasant years were void of the divine favor of God, could not be farther from the truth for Jacob. Right, despite it all, his great shepherd had still been with him and was with him even through the valleys of the shadow and death. And we see Jacob's mentality here. He shows us that despite his few and evil years, he still remained steady, trusting in his rock. Notice, what does Pharaoh ask him? Pharaoh says, how long have you lived? But Joseph, excuse me, Jacob replies, not with how long he lived, but with how long he had sojourned on the earth. That's his intention there with that cryptic answer. The author of Hebrews is right on point. He gives us the answer here. In verse 13, all these pointing to Abraham, Isaac, and to Jacob, He says, all these died in faith without receiving the promises, but having seen them and having welcomed them from a distance and having confessed that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. They were aliens and sojourners on the earth. So the author in Hebrew is saying this here, that as Jacob confesses that he is a sojourner on the earth, He is confessing his faith in the Lord. He has received the promises. He sees them from a distance. And he roots himself, looking for that which is to come. Jacob is rooted in the promises of God. And it's this very faith that then leads Jacob to pronounce a second blessing upon Pharaoh. As we see in verse 10, he suddenly departs from the king's presence Verse 10, and Jacob blessed Pharaoh and he went out from his presence, right? The man who had earlier cheated to receive a blessing from his father is now the man who is a source of double blessing to this pagan king. This is a testimony of God's goodness. It's a testimony of God's grace. He had promised to be with Jacob and he had. And so now he is the one blessing others around them. That brings us then to our last, phase, our third and final phase of this move, and that's the new home in verses 11 through 12. The new home, verse 11, so Joseph settled his father and his brothers and gave them a possession in the land of Egypt and the best of the land and the land of Ramses as Pharaoh had ordered. In fulfillment of his promise, we see that God manifests his goodness by providing for his people down in Egypt. Notice Joseph settles his family and provides them a possession and the best of the land, the land of Ramses. By giving his family a possession, we see that that Joseph through Pharaoh was going above and beyond what the family had requested. They had only asked to sojourn in the land. But now here we see Pharaoh giving them a possession. He was giving them a new home, yet a temporary home. We know this would not be their permanent home. They would be there for 400 years, But it is from here that they will go out. They will go out at the head of Moses to lead the people back into the promised land. The word Ramses here is just an equivalent designation for Goshen. This is the place where God will prosper his people and form them into a great nation. Verse 12, and so Joseph provided his father and his brothers and all his father's household with food according to their little ones. What started back in 37, chapter 37, the crisis has now been averted. The, the threat has now subsided. God's purpose for sending Joseph into the land of Egypt has been fulfilled. God has showcased his glorious strength by saving his people. Right, what God has declared that he will do he does. Through Joseph's wise leadership, through his own sovereign goodness, God has faithfully provided his people a new home, a home where he will begin building a nation. As we finish, I just have a few application points for us. What can we take from this lesson? What can we glean from it? First is to savor, savor God's goodness. As I was just going through this this week, just looking at this over and over, God's goodness, His kindness, His love just continued to, to pour itself out as God provided for His people over and over again. Second, trust God's faithfulness. Trust God's faithfulness. God was manifesting His salvation, manifesting His fidelity, His veracity of His word, that He is faithful, He will do what He has said. And third, to model model joseph's wise leadership here in whatever position that you might be in and whatever means that you might need to model wise leadership god uses providential means to bring about his goodness and to bring about the fidelity of his word model his wise leadership embrace embrace jacob's sojourning mindset right this earth is not our home well, at least until Christ returns and we have a new heavens and a new earth, you know. But temporarily, this present earth as it is, is not our home. We have a home that is with our Lord. He is preparing it for us as we talked about this morning. We will go to be with him. And then lastly, as so I conclude with this, prepare. Prepare for your monumental meeting. What do I mean by that? Well, understand, all of us need to reflect on this fact that Hebrews 9.27 says that it has been appointed for man to die once and then comes judgment, all right? Your meeting, the most important monumental meeting of your life is not with a, the president of the United States. It's not with a, a king of a nation. It's not with your boss. It's not with so-and-so. It's with the judge of the universe the one who is perfectly holy, the one who is infinitely just, the one who is absolutely righteous. And you can can meet with him in either one of two ways. Either one, come to that meeting unprepared, or two, come listening to the wise instructions that the judge himself has given to you here in his word. Yes, what are those wise instructions? What does what is our judge, what has our king? What is our Lord given to us here in this word? It's this: first, acknowledge your occupation. You are a servant of sin since the day that you were born. Right? You are a worker of strife, deceit, malice, of lust, anger, impatience. You are an engineer of idolatry. You are an inventor of evil, and the wages of your labor are death eternal death. You must acknowledge that to, to come to the end of yourself. And second, you must acknowledge the one and only mediator between you and that holy judge is the Lord Jesus Christ. Not, not man, not Mary, not saints, not, not your pastor, not, not anyone, but the Lord Jesus Christ. 1 Timothy 2.5 There is one God there's one mediator between God and men the man Christ Jesus who gave himself as a ransom for all. So as you acknowledge you're a debtor in sin, you fling yourself on the one who paid your ransom. You repent from your sins, you believe and turn and turn to Christ. When you do, you will be prepared for that meeting. You will be prepared to face him not because of anything you have done, but because of what he has done. And that judge will render to you not a divine verdict of condemnation, but of blessing. he will say, here, here is a new home in which you can live with me forever. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word in which you have instructed us and how to know you and how to love you and how to be ready, Father, on that day when we will die and then comes judgment. Father, we know that you have given to us exactly what we're to do, to be prepared to face our, our heavenly judge. We know that we have sinned against you. We have broken your law. We have turned from you in every way. Lord, in your great grace and your love and your mercy, you have sent your Son in the fullness of time to die for us, to live for us, to die for us, to be raised again, to pay our ransom, so that now He can mediate, He can stand the gap, He can stand the breach, He can absorb the justice, the penalty, the wrath that we deserved. And now, God, you can render to us the spiritual blessing of knowing You and of living with you forever, Lord. Pray that everyone here in this room would cling to that truth. If anyone doesn't, I pray that you would turn their heart today to Christ. Lord, they cannot do it on their own will. They cannot do it on their own terms. They need your Holy Spirit to go forward and to regenerate their hearts. I pray that you would do that, Lord. For the rest of us, I pray, let us savor your goodness. You are a good and gracious God, as we have seen even in the life of Jacob and Joseph in these many weeks. We praise you. We give you all the glory. Amen.